ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, Queensland has a new Premier in waiting, Stephen Miles, and he's already being tested as Cyclone Jasper bears down on the far north coast. Also, Ukraine's president makes a desperate dash to DC, seeking billions of dollars his military needs to fight off a resurgent Russia. And the costs of becoming cashless. Are we going to have to start paying extra just to use old-fashioned money? Wouldn't surprise me if we had additional payments made by merchants to you know, allow us to transact with cash, because we are getting used to that. Thanks for your company. Queensland's Premier-in-waiting Stephen Miles is staring down a long list of issues as he prepares to start his time in the top job. He's stressing it's not official until the Labor caucus votes on Friday. But the state's treasurer, Cameron Dick, has been named as his deputy and they've already landed a policy announcement together. As well as urgent cost-of-living problems in the Sunshine State, Stephen Miles is facing an Olympic-sized problem that he's promising to fix when he takes the reins. Stephanie Smale reports. He's not a new face, but by the end of the week, he'll have a new job. And Queensland's Premier-in-waiting, Stephen Miles, says he's focused on winning Labor a fourth term. At the end of next year, Queenslanders will have a choice. And I intend to prove to them over the next 10 or 11 months that the best choice for Queensland is to re-elect our government. That could be easier said than done, with opinion polls showing voter support is waning after nearly a decade of Labor leadership. Anastasia Palaszczuk dropped her resignation bomb on the weekend, anointing Stephen Miles as her successor. What I intend to demonstrate to Queenslanders between now and then is just what kind of Premier I would be. Absolutely focused on them, their safety, their cost of living and the issues that are important to them. Queensland's Health Minister Shannon Fentiman put her hand up for the top job too, but pulled out this morning. Treasurer Cameron Dick has been named deputy, putting two men at the helm in Queensland for the first time since 2005. They're both stressing the matter is in the hands of the state parliamentary party, which will cast their official vote on Friday. But they've already landed their first policy announcement, freezing car registration in 2024, which will come into effect three months before the state election. Every dollar matters to every Queensland families and every dollar we can help them with makes a big difference for those individuals and those families. Well, we're anticipating that people will save about $21.50 for a five or six cylinder vehicle. There's mixed opinion among these Queensland voters about how much that will help. No, I don't really think that that's going to help people who are struggling to meet their food costs every week, is it? Not $20 a year. That's, what, 50 cents a week? Woohoo! Uh, it's a drop in the ocean, but every drop counts. And maybe it will help in the future. Let's hope he does it for the next 10 years. And in response to a string of questions about the role unions played in the leadership deal, Stephen Miles had this response. There's been a lot of discussions between a lot of people over the last few days, but this is an agreement between Cameron and I. I asked Cameron to run with me and he agreed. 
And then there's the Olympic-sized problem of the Olympics. Cost blowouts and questions about how the mega-project is being managed have plagued the Palaszczuk government for months. Now Stephen Miles says he'll consider an independent authority to deliver the infrastructure needed for the Games. When people say things to you, you should listen to them, listen closely to them, and if they're right, there's nothing wrong with changing your mind. And so uh, in this case, I have heard what they've had to say. I've been convinced by those arguments. Crime has also been a major problem for the Labor government and Queensland's opposition leader, David Crisafulli, is already outlining the Liberal National Party's policy plans with a firm focus on tackling it. The government's running around chasing numbers and votes and Queenslanders are being chased in the streets. I can tell you where my priority is. Griffith University commentator Paul Williams says Labor's new leaders will need to start delivering fast to win back votes. The perception across the electorate is that the Labor Party, which has been in office now for nine years and by the election will be almost 10 years, is looking a bit tired unless the new Premier, Stephen Miles, can achieve some really tangible results in cost of living, in youth crime, in hospital ramping, in social housing, the Labor Party won't be competitive. So it's not just about leadership changes, it's about how they can make Queensland lives better. And he says if the Albanese government has high hopes that Stephen Miles will be more accepting of the new, less generous infrastructure funding plan, they're likely to be disappointed. You know, the old adage is never stand in front of a, a, a state premier and a bucket of money. I think you'll see Stephen Miles, who's a very pragmatic politician, he will call out the Albanese government if he feels that there's not enough money coming to fund the Queensland infrastructure projects that he needs to say during the election campaign, this is what I built. If he can't do that, he will pillory the Albanese government just as severely as anyone. Stephen Miles's first big task, though, will be managing the response to Cyclone Jasper that's bearing down on the far north Queensland coast. Stephanie Smale reporting there with Elizabeth Cramsey. Well, let's get more on that cyclone now. Locals in far north Queensland bracing for the arrival of tropical cyclone Jasper. It's been upgraded to a Category 2 cyclone and is expected to cross the coast after midday Queensland time tomorrow. Authorities are warning of winds of up to 140 kilometres an hour and potentially destructive storm surges as well. I spoke earlier to Terry James, the Mayor of Cairns. Mayor Terry James, thanks for being with us. What are people doing on the ground there to prepare for this cyclone? At the moment, um, it seems to be the calm before the storm. So we've asked everybody to prepare themselves in in, uh, getting their emergency kit organised. Situations like this, normally uh, we're going to lose power. That's normally a given because it's not only the cyclone that's coming our way, there's a lot of rain. We're expecting for... 100 to 500 millimetres of rain. So uh, at some stage, power will will go out potentially and uh, people will need to prepare uh, for that situation. Now, if you haven't got a gas stove, we're asking people to grab out their their camping stove and all their gear because you're potentially going to be out of power for five days. That's that's the maximum that we allow for Mm. because uh, there's a lot of work, obviously, to get the power back on. Uh, In particular, this cyclone, uh, we're expecting a storm surge with it. How serious will that storm surge be? It depends when the cyclone crosses. If it crosses um, at high tide, now we've got king tides this week, tomorrow morning, for example, at 9.30am, we've got approximately a three-metre tide. That's the worry. If uh, it crosses at the same time as the uh, king tide, the surge could be anywhere 
you know, from 300 millimetres to 700 millimetres in some places. Mm. Uh, if it crosses at low tide, well, you won't see anything. But we're asking for people to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So clearly um, flooding is a concern. What about destructive winds? Destructive winds at this stage, it, uh, they're talking about a category uh, sorry, a category two cyclone. That's um, that's it's not a small cyclone, but it's something that um, we see quite often over the years up in Cairns. Uh, we can deal with a category two. You know, there will be some slight damage. There will be a lot of uh, trees down, that sort of stuff. But in terms of structural damage, uh, most of the buildings these days are built to withstand those sort of forces. What's your message to tourists and, and others who were planning to come to that region? Well, the message to the tourists, uh, anyone really, is, is stay informed. If you go to the Cairns Regional Council Disaster Dashboard, uh, you've got a one-stop uh, place to look at everything that's going on. That's be it power outages, Telstra outages, flooded roads, everything is in one place. Now, you can also download my Cairns app and you can get all these details on your iPhone as well. But we're a pre pretty resilient community up here. We, we practice for this every year, so uh, we should get over it pretty quick. But uh, as I said, it depends on when this thing crosses and what it does. They're, they're so unpredictable, so we, we always prepare for the worst. What specific things are people doing to prepare? I mean, are people sort of securing boats? Are they are they taping up windows? What What's happening on the ground? Yes, uh, we ask people to secure boats, caravans, don't park your cars under trees, for example. And we put out a message that uh, if you're in a low-lying area, so we have a, a red, orange and yellow zones, that, that that's the lowest areas. Uh, come and grab some uh, free sandbags from uh, the local um, local uh, area in Cairns, um, and that's we've been inundated with people grabbing those those uh, free sandbags. So that's probably the biggest thing. Flooding flooding is what you'll always expect with a cyclone, uh, with a lot of rain. Terry James, thank you and good luck. Thank you very much. That's Terry James, the Mayor of Cairns. You're listening to PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has flown to Washington, D.C. in an attempt to rescue a critical $92 billion military aid package, which has stalled amid growing resistance from Republicans. It comes as the reality sets in. The long-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed. As winter takes hold, Ukraine is also calling on Australia to shore up the country's energy system by providing thermal coal. Flint Duxfield reports. Almost 22 months after Russia began its assault on Ukraine, the bombs continue to fall. Russian forces have unleashed a major offensive on Avdika, with more than 600 shells falling near the eastern Ukrainian town over the past day. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky insists his country will not give up. The whole world is watching us. We know what to do. And you can count on Ukraine and we hope just as much to be able to count on you. This week, Mr Zelensky is travelling to Washington, D.C., where lawmakers are debating a bill that would provide the U.S.'s largest ever contribution to Ukraine's fight, a $92 billion aid package which the Ukrainian president says is essential to helping his country keep Russia at bay. Every one of you here understands what it means for a soldier 
to wait for munition, waiting for weeks, months without knowing if support will come at all. Let me be frank, if there's anyone inspired by unresolved issues on Capitol Hill, it's just Putin and his sick clique. So far, the US has contributed more than $110 billion to Ukraine's war effort, and US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin insists that support will continue. Mr President, Ukraine's fight for freedom is one of the great causes of our time. And the United States is proud to stand with you. And make no mistake, America's commitment to supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression is unshakable. But the commitment of Congress seems less solid, with President Biden's latest package stymied last week after a group of Republicans, including Senator Mitt Romney, walked out of discussions, disappointed that the Ukraine aid could not be coupled with efforts to crack down on illegal immigration at the US-Mexico border. We have gone from one to 2,000 encounters, illegal encounters at the border a day, under the three prior presidents, under Bush, Obama and Trump. Now we're seeing 10 to 12,000 a day. We want to solve that to secure the border. So any effort that doesn't do that will be rejected by Republicans. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling is the former commanding general of the United States Army in Europe. He says combined with the war between Israel and Hamas, the ongoing nature of the Ukraine-Russia conflict has left the US public war-weary. It's just an unfortunate indictment of American society at large that we have such a short attention span on such an important and critical issue of an ally, a partner of ours, who's defending their sovereign territory and their democracy. Lieutenant General Hurtling says if the aid doesn't arrive by the end of the month, there will be definite negative effects on the battlefield. The Ukrainian forces are basically fighting hand to mouth, then it's going to be extremely challenging for them to continue their offensive. The UK is also reviewing its future military aid commitment to Ukraine, currently at $4.4 billion a year, while Germany announced last month it would double its annual contribution to $13 billion in 2024. Since the war began, Australia has contributed $910 million of aid to Ukraine, including $730 million for military assistance. But right now, Ukraine is seeking a different form of support, Australian coal. Last year, the federal government bought 70,000 tonnes of coal to send to Ukraine, and Ukrainian ambassador Vassil Maroznichenko is again urging Australia to provide what he described as a life-saving necessity. As it's getting cold, Russians are stepping up their attacks on other power generation and, and transmission lines, and that's making it extremely difficult because it's put so much pressure on the civilian population and coal could be that gift for Christmas that could be sent over. A spokesperson for the Minister for Resources, Madeleine King, says Australia is working to empower Ukraine to end the war on its own terms and is in close contact with the Ukrainian embassy to understand how Australia can most effectively do so. Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to meet with US President Joe Biden and US Senators on Tuesday. Flint Duxfield there. Well, we've all become used to paying surcharges for swiping a bank card. But how would you feel about being slugged extra because you're paying with cash? Transporting and processing cash is becoming more expensive as the number of people using it plummets. And now the Governor of the Reserve Bank is warning it's likely those costs will soon be passed on. David Sparks has more. Paying with cash has become what some would describe as old-fashioned and a lot of people avoid it altogether. I used card. Always the card. Always the card. Never cash. And never cash. Even the plastic card is fast becoming a thing of the past. Hey mate, when you pay for stuff, how do you pay? Uh, my smartphone. Never cash? 
Um, only when I go to my barber shop. Sir, do you, how do you pay for stuff? Cash and card. Which do you say more would you use? Equal. Really? So you, you, you probably use cash more than other people use cash then? Yes. Why do you think you're using cash more than other people are using it? Because of the surcharge on credit cards. But what if surcharges or something similar were also applied to cash purchases? Cash has gone from making up 70% of our purchases in 2007 to just 13% last year. In September, Commonwealth Bank CEO Matt Common told a parliamentary hearing providing cash to the bank's customers was costing it around $400 million a year. Those costs are getting harder to ignore. It's something the Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Michelle Bullock has noted. Now, the challenge we face is that as the transactional use of cash declines, it's affecting the economics of providing cash services and it's putting pressure on the cash distribution system. Speaking to the payments industry this morning, she told them the country's only cash transport company, Linfox Armagard, had indicated the business is unsustainable and has been for some time. And industry, regulators and government will need to continue to work together to put in place sustainable arrangements for cash distribution. Michelle Bullock was asked if people will have to start paying for the privilege of using cash. She says it might happen, but not in a very noticeable way. If businesses started charging people to use cash, I suspect there would be um, a very big uh, backlash. Having said that, it's also true that as economists, you want people to face the prices of using particular services that reflect the cost of those services. So um, at the moment, I think we're probably in a position where um, it's very difficult to actually enforce payment for cash, but it's going to end up, what's going to happen and what does happen at the moment is that the costs end up embedded in the costs of the financial institutions that are providing the services um, and people don't face them. I think, I think it'd be a very big challenge though to get people to face the costs of cash. In other words, there might come a day where you don't realise you're being charged a fee for using cash, but it might be quietly added to the price of whatever you're buying. Chris Berg is Director of Digital 3 at RMIT University. I mean, cash is basically being replaced by digital payments. That's not a surprise as the economy becomes more digital and the um, uh, integration of digital technologies into our day-to-day lives becomes more widespread and deeper. Um, people are preferring digital payments rather than physical ones. But that doesn't mean we should just let cash disappear entirely. We are losing something when we lose cash because cash is the most private payments technology. And there's lots of industries, sometimes very politically exposed industries, that rely on cash. And what I worry about the end of cash is that we're going to lose some of the privacy benefits we get from from that technology. As instead of making anonymous payments as we do with cash, the banks and regulators are able to really scrutinise and prevent us from making certain payments in in, in important times in our lives. Chris Berg agrees that one day the extra costs of cash will probably be passed on to the customer one way or another. People have accepted paying surcharges on digital um, payments for a long time. So there are all sorts of controls and regulatory parameters around how we pay for these sorts of things. It wouldn't surprise me if in due course we had you know additional payments made by merchants um, in order to you know, allow us to transact with cash because we are getting used to that. Now, I don't think that's a good path to go down, but that wouldn't surprise me. Chris Berg says efforts are needed to keep the cost of digital transactions as low as possible. And for that to happen, more competition is needed in the payments sector. David Sparks reporting.
In the past five years, one in three Australians has been sexually harassed at work. That's according to the latest data from the Australian Human Rights Commission. But from today, the Commission has new powers to investigate and enforce laws that put the onus on employers to prevent sexual harassment in the first place. Isabel Masali takes a look. When Marie Fester put in a sexual harassment complaint in her workplace, it wasn't straightforward. I didn't know what I was experiencing was technically sexual harassment. And I worked out very quickly that the board didn't really know if it was or not. And others that I spoke to who are very well versed in in running organisations weren't sure. Now as she runs Chief Executive Women, which represents female leaders, she cautions new standards won't eradicate sexual harassment in the workplace, but says they're an important step forward, starting with education. It will force people to start to educate themselves and it will force people to start taking action on bad behaviours that we haven't seen previously. So what we all thought was just inappropriate behaviour perhaps or you know, words taken out of context or just a joke, understanding that that is, by the letter of the law, sexual harassment is a big eye-opener for so many companies and it's something that they will have to grapple with. From today, Australian employers may be asked to prove to the Human Rights Commission that they're actively preventing sexual harassment and other unlawful behaviour rather than just responding to it after it occurs. This enforces recent laws that aim to eliminate workplace harassment. Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner is Dr Anna Cody. Our compliance model is very much uh, trying to work with employers to assist them to meet their obligations under the law. If that's unsuccessful, then we have the powers to begin an inquiry into what is happening at that workplace. After that inquiry, then we also have the powers to issue a compliance notice. If they don't comply with that compliance notice, then we can seek redress from the federal court. So what changes can you expect in your workplace? Lisa Heap is with RMIT, researching gender-based violence and harassment in the workplace. She's also a labour lawyer and the former executive director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights. She says this goes beyond training. What we also might see is, um, you know, kind of a discussion and measures being taken to say, well, we might have to mix, change the mix in this workplace. Um, you know, we've got predominantly males in particular areas and predominantly females in other areas. Let's have a look at whether that's right or wrong. You know, they should actually be seeing an awareness raising in their workplace and for each worker kind of expectation being created that they understand what sexual harassment is and that they understand what sex discrimination is and that they ensure that their own conduct and the conduct of their colleagues is, is not harassing and not discriminatory. Lisa Heap explains what's expected of an organisation depends on their resources. So a large mining company would need to take greater measures than your local cafe. But there's also a duty to prevent harassment from the public, such as in healthcare and retail settings. What workers in retail should be expecting is that their employers actively engaging with them to say, how do we design the work so that there's not like big queues where people get angry and aggressive? Um, 
workers should be getting the message from their employers that you shouldn't have to tolerate any violence and harassment at work. A recent survey from the Australian Institute of Company Directors found 80% of directors don't believe they're equipped for the new changes, though they do believe the prevention of workplace sexual harassment is a high-priority issue. But Lisa Heap argues they've had a year to prepare. I understand that it's difficult, but there should at least be a measure of risk assessment being have been done and some measures being put in place. Now, whether or not they are in to- the total of what's required, at least some measures should have been done. And then over time, employers should be expected to be getting better and better at meeting this obligation, I think. That's RMIT Labor lawyer Lisa Heap ending Isabel Masali's report. After 10 days of negotiations, the climate talks at COP28 in Dubai have stalled over just a few crucial words. The draft text avoids calls for phasing out of fossil fuels, instead asking countries to take actions that could include reducing fossil fuels. There's still some time to harden up commitments and there has been some progress in other areas. To discuss, I was joined by Kirsten Hagen, the Head of Policy and Diplomacy for the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent. She spent the last 10 days at the summit in Dubai. Kirsten Hagen, thanks for your time. There has been some progress in negotiations to come up with an agreement here, but what's been done so far has been labelled woefully inadequate. Why is that? The first concern is that right now we are not on track to keep global heating within 1.5 degrees. In fact, if you look at the state of nationally determined contributions, the money on the table, we're looking at being substantially more, in fact, between two and three degrees. So it's really critical at this point in time that there are strong commitments on the table that will reduce emissions to the extent that we will actually stay within the 1.5. With every fraction of a degree over 1.5, we're going to see more extreme weather events. They'll get worse. They'll get more intense. They'll get frequent. They will overlap and hit the same communities over and over again. And so the humanitarian impacts are getting worse and worse. How confident are you that there will actually be an agreement and what are the consequences if an agreement can't be reached here? That's a really good question and there is actually a lot of pressure to try and wrap up the discussions today. So the official end of the COP should be today and it doesn't look like we're as close to an agreement as we should be. That said, um, in the past, COPs tend to run over at least one, often two days and finish at 4am in the morning, two days after Mm -hmm. the official end. So I think that there's still some time. We're not, uh, we're not certainly not getting up now. In terms of this being a success, what it really is going to need to do is first deliver on mitigation. So that means strong commitments, much stronger than we've had in the past when it comes to keeping below 1.5. But it also means we have to make progress on adaptation. Mm. And at the moment, we're quite worried about that. Um, There are two things that are really missing when it comes to adaptation. The first piece is adaptation finance. So if you look at financing for adaptation, there's a huge gap in the funding needed for countrywide adaptation. So adaptation needs to reach somewhere between US 194 billion and 300 
$66 billion per year dollars. in order to meet the, the basics, what, yeah, in dollars per year, in order to meet the needs when it comes to adaptation. And yet the most recent evidence is showing that adaptation funding actually went down 15% last year, um, and it's around 25 billion last year. So much, much lower than it should be. The second piece is to be agreeing a global goal on adaptation. So this is the equivalent of like of the 1.5 goal for mitigation. This is what we want to achieve. And so the idea is to have a framework that's going to guide and strengthen adaptation efforts, including capacities, and will also reduce vulnerabilities. So without those two critical elements of mitigation and adaptation, then this COP won't be seen as, as a success, even though there has been some great advancements, in particular in the area of loss and damage. Well, well, tell us more about that. So loss and damage is effectively the impacts of climate change. So what happens when either we failed to mitigate and adapt or actually the impacts are so extreme that we cannot mitigate and adapt. So where we got to this year, which is quite exciting, and it's important to note that loss and damage hasn't been on the formal COP agenda until very recently. It was always part of a, a mechanism on the side where there were technical discussions, but it didn't make it into the negotiations. And now it's firmly part of the negotiations. There was a loss and damage agreement, and this was actually agreed on the very first day of the COP. And the agreement was to establish both a fund for loss and damage, but also funding arrangements. And so what that means is that there are different types of funding. This includes humanitarian funding that responds to loss and damage when it occurs. And so the idea of the fund is to fill in those gaps, to fund what's not being funded. And then the funding arrangements piece is how it's all going to work together. And so what we're hoping is that this is like pieces of a puzzle or pieces of a mosaic where all of the relevant organizations will come together and say, okay, we've got this piece covered, but there's a huge gap here. So for example, there's a huge gap in supporting recovery after extreme weather events. There's a huge gap in terms of slow onset and what this means for small island developing states. So let's identify those gaps and work together to plug those gaps. That's Kirsten Hagen from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Electric vehicles, electric bikes, electric scooters, they're becoming more prevalent. But as we make the green transition, the dangers of the lithium-ion batteries that power these devices and many others are becoming more apparent. Today, the lead technology translator from the University of New South Wales, Matthew Priestley, on what causes the battery fires and how to reduce the risk. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.